Good morning. Happy Father's Day, everybody. How y'all been? Plans for Father's Day? Anybody? We've got a brisket on the smoker right now. I'm excited. We're going to eat that this afternoon. Um, all right. So I do have a lot of work to do today. Um, if y'all remember, if y'all been here last week, we did breakfast. The two weeks before that, uh, Pastor Peter talked through verses one through three of chapter three. Uh, is where John is talking about the wonder. It's just, he's, he's taking a break for three verses from this, uh, these three tests of faith, and he is expounding on just the wondrous fact that we get to be called children of God and that we actually are that. Um, and now he's about to get back to some more tests of faith. And uh, I'm going to just let you know what we're going to do the next three weeks. We're going to cover, so we, we took two weeks to cover three verses, and we're going to do like 15 verses over the next three weeks. There are reasons for this. I don't want to get you guys thrown off with the time shifting and, and that kind of stuff. There's some reasons though. It's not arbitrary. It's not just because Nick talks fast and likes to cover lots of stuff, and Peter takes forever to get through things. I don't want y'all to think of me as the fast forward button, because that's not the way this works. Um, Peter was dealing with new material, I'm dealing with recovering old material. So John, we, we talked about he likes to repeat himself a lot. And so uh, we're going to get into some stuff. It's a new angle on some things, but it's a lot of the same idea. Uh, that's one reason. Um, another reason is that Peter has been teaching literally longer than I've been alive. And so if he sees more things in a passage than I do, that's to be expected. He is a more experienced and better teacher than I am. And if and if he weren't, that would be a problem because he's literally been doing it since I was a baby. So he should be better at this than I am, and he is. And so if he sees things, I want him to take the time to expound that stuff. That's how we learn how to do it. Um, I've also said, you know, John, teaching first John is like untangling Christmas lights. You pull them out. You are reminded of how little respect you had for yourself last year when you put them away. Um, uh, but you pull them out, and you, the size of the bundle determines the size that you're going to work with. Uh, you don't say, like, I'm going to take the left half of this bundle this week and then the right half of the bundle. You deal with the bundle as it comes. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, through John, wrote this book in these bundles. And we deal with the bundles as John gives them to us. And so I've got a bundle of about seven verses coming up. And then it's five verses after that. And then three verses is the order we're going to go in. Uh, I do want to do a little preliminary work. And so I need to, I, I'm just trying to pace myself here. Uh, how many of you guys are Bible teachers in this room? Raise your hand if you're a Bible teacher. Peter, raise your hand. Yes. Bible teachers. How many of you are Bible? Keep your hands up. Okay. How many of you teach in any kind of environment here, whether it's uh, school of the word? I should have my hand up, I guess. Um, how many of you teach children's church at all, help with children's church in any way? Okay. Keep your hand up. How many of you all lead Bible studies? How many of you, keep your hand up. How many of you are parents with children who you talk to about the Bible or who ask you questions about the Bible? Okay. Or grandchildren. How many of you have grandchildren who you talk to about the Bible who ask you questions about the Bible? How many of you have friends that you sometimes have to give counsel to and advise out of the Bible? Okay. If any of those topics or, or uh, categories fit to you, raise your hand. Okay. We have a room full of Bible teachers. So we should probably take a second to talk about how we teach the Bible. Okay. And I don't want to spend too long on this, but I think it's important because I got to do some groundwork 
for what I'm going to do later with this passage that we've got. My question for you is, how do you approach the Bible? How do you personally approach the Bible, and how should we approach the Bible? Um, I want to break it into two kind of distinctions of ways to do this thing. Uh, The first one you see there is expositionally or expositorily. You'll see both words versus topically. This is a distinction of ways that we approach Scripture in terms of the chunks and how we, how we pick what we're going to talk about. Um, expository or expositional teaching, or even reading, and I'm going to use those back and forth because I think we do them both, um, is looking at the Bible in the chunks that it gives us. It's most often done a book at a time, but sometimes you see collections of books, or even they get to Psalms. There's like a, check, a chunk of the Psalms. It's called the, uh, the Songs of Ascent. And you might do a teaching through those, or you might do more than one book. You might do the books of the letters of John, right? You could do that. Um, it's taking it and starting at the beginning of that and working your way through it. So right now we're in the middle of an expository or an expositional teaching through John. Um, Brian Chappell describes it this way. The main idea of an expository, I have a lot, some definitions here. You don't have them in your notes because I didn't think you needed them. If you want them, let me know and I'll get them to you. The main idea of an expository sermon, the topic, the divisions that I, of that idea, main points in the development of those divisions all come from the truths the text itself contains. No significant portions of the text are ignored. In other words, expositors willingly stay within the boundaries of the text and do not leave until they have served its entirety with its hearers. So that is, I'm going to look here, start at this, I'm going to work to the end of it, I'm going to talk about what the Bible talks about in this section. Does that make sense? Okay. This is contrasted with topical teaching or topical reading. Um, we do this here too. So this was, we're doing an expository teaching through First John, but you remember Peter and David did a topical teaching on the love of God. And downstairs, we'll go through expository teachings on First Corinthians, Exodus, um, various gospels. But we also are right now in the middle of a topical series on pace, okay? Um, a topical sermon takes a subject, this is Mark Dever talking, um, and talks about it rather than a ta- uh, taking a particular text of the Bible as its subject. A topical sermon begins with a particular matter that the preacher wants to preach about. The topic could be prayer or justice or parenting or holiness or even expositional preaching. Having established a topic, the preacher then assembles various texts from various parts of the Bible and combines them with illustrative stories and anecdotes. The material is combined and woven together around this one topic. The topical sermon is not built around one text of scripture, but around this one chosen theme or idea. Like I said, we do both these things. Neither one is wrong. Um, There's no thou shalt not teach topically in the Bible. Um, However, topical teaching does have a concern you need to be aware of as you're doing it. Uh, By the way, also, if you counsel more than you teach, you're going to be working topically. Somebody comes to you with a problem, you can't say... Start here in Genesis, read until you solve your problem. Now, you have to know where things are in Scripture. It demands that of you. Um, But when we teach topically, we can avoid things we don't want to talk about. We can only pick things that we're comfortable with. We can lean on one side of doctrine that we really like to talk about, especially some of these tension doctrines like God's sovereignty versus our responsibility um, or sin versus grace. Um, We can lean on the side we like to talk about and avoid stuff that we don't like to talk about. So that's a risk that we run if we work exclusively topically or primarily topically. Um, I, I, you know, I heard, I was listening to a sermon this past week by Alistair Begg, who is a great preacher. 
has a great Scottish accent, uh, worth listening to just for that. But he's in the middle of 2 Samuel, and he's in this 2 Samuel chapter 21 talking about David when he's got to kill seven of uh, Saul's grandchildren uh, to, as penance or basically as, as, as tribute or retribution for Saul's uh, abuse of another people's. And he said, he's like, I didn't wake up Monday morning thinking, you know what I'll do this week? I'll do 2 Samuel 21, that real hard passage about David killing all of, you know, Saul's grandchildren. No, he said, I did 20 last time. It'd be weird if I didn't do 21, and I've got to deal with it as it comes. That is the nature of the beast when you're doing expository teaching. However, well, let's, let's fast forward from there and talk about another distinction. Exegesis versus eisegesis. Have you guys heard these words? Okay. Exegesis literally means leading out of. Eisegesis means leading into. And the leading that we're talking about is the point of the text and the text itself. So when we exegete, exegete, we, we are do exegetical teaching. We are leading the topic, leading the point of what we talk about out of the text. When we do eisegesis, we read what we want to into the text. Got the difference? Okay, this expositional versus topical preaching, that was not a right, wrong thing. It was a stylistic, watch some dangers here and there, but both okay. Not the same here. This is a right, wrong thing. Okay, this is a right way to read the Bible versus a wrong way to read the Bible. Um, I actually, in listening to that sermon, Alistair Begg gave a great definition of exegesis as he's talking about his struggles with this verse. He says, so what are we going to do today, basically? He says, our task is straightforward. It is the same task for every passage. And that is to ask of the passage, what is it actually saying? Not to ask, what would I like it to say? Not, what kind of emphasis might I give to it? Or worse still, how does it make me feel? But rather, what is it actually saying? That is a great definition, and it's even better definition when you hear it in Alistair Begg's accent. Um, eisegesis takes what I want the Bible to say about something and manipulates the passage to say that, okay? Um, it makes me the authority over Scripture and not submitted to it. Um, it means if I have a particular hobby horse or soapbox topic that I just love to rail about, I will look at a passage that even if I'm reading it, even expositionally, and I'll say, how do I make this say, or how do I quickly get from this to what I really feel like talking about? Um, you may have heard of Maslow's hammer, or if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If I have a few things I love to talk about, I will manipulate scripture to fit into my box of things I want to talk about. Ironically, I think this is, and you might be able to make a, different, a case against this, but I think you can make a case that expositional preaching and teaching and reading needs to be more careful about eisegesis. And here's why. If I'm reading through a book of the Bible, I'm going to get the hard stuff and then I have to decide what to do with it. I have to decide, am I going to make this say what I want it to say or am I going to let it tell me what it wants to say? If I'm teaching or reading topically, I don't ever deal with those passages. I just overlook them. I'm kind of doing an eisegesis on the whole Bible in a way because I'm, I'm uh, only picking the things I want to talk about. But per text, you understand the difference I'm making here? It's easier for me to just avoid the hard stuff if I'm, if I'm taking a more topical approach to the Bible. Um, but if I am getting into the Bible 
chapter by chapter, I have to deal with these hard passages that say things that I don't like. So why am I talking about this today? Two reasons. First of all, a bunch of you guys raised your hands and said you were Bible teachers in here, and I appreciate all of the work that all of you do, and I mean that legitimately from the bottom of my heart. It is important that we know how to do this well. Uh, I have a master's in counseling, and one of the things that we talk about when I was studying was how do you know when to stop counseling? And it was when the counselee knows how to counsel themselves, when they're not just relying on you to do the work for them, but they are doing the work on themselves. They are stopping and asking the questions that you would ask. That's when you know, all right, you've got this. Let's move forward. I think uh, Peter and I have not talked about this, but I think he would agree with me, and you can stand up and fuss at me or make a cat sound or something if I'm wrong. Um, Our goal is not simply to teach you here what 1 John says. Our goal is to teach you how to understand what the Bible says on your own and to show and model. And sometimes we'll just do that um, through, uh, what I'm looking for, leading by example. Uh, But sometimes I would like to take moments here, and Peter will take moments here and talk to us about how we really do this thing. So do you all understand expositional versus topical teaching and reading? Because you can teach or read it that way. Do you understand exegesis versus eisegesis? Okay, good. The other reason I think that was important to talk here is because we're going to read a tricky text today. And I'm going to come away with something. Well, and when I say tricky, what I really mean is, is it seems almost impossible. And if I'm going to make it sound possible, I want you to know that I'm not doing it by virtue of some kind of shell game where I am reading eisegetically, where I'm forcing this thing to say what I want it to say. I want you to know that I'm aware of that possibility and that I'm going to approach this scripture exegetically We are going to let it say what it says, and we will only come away feeling more comfortable with it if it lets us do that. And if it doesn't, then we're going to make it ourselves fit our expectations of our lives to what it tells us. So as we read this passage, feel challenged, then we'll get into what the text says. We'll get into some really fun grammar um, and Greek, and then we will come away and apply it to our lives. Cool? Here's our text, 1 John 3, 4, 1 through 10. Uh, And I'm in the ESV, which is important here, and we'll talk about why. Uh, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one that abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How do we interpret scripture that seems impossible? Um, This passage makes some really big and bold claims about sin and righteousness in the life of the believer. Uh, And what it says at first glance might sound like an impossible standard. Um, How many of you sin, have sinned this week, okay? 
Um, so this talking about anyone who is God's child, I only have two hands, yeah. Um, uh, if we're going to call ourselves God's child, we're going to look at this and say, this doesn't seem like it lines up with my lived experience. Um, but if we're going to relieve ourselves from that difficulty, we're going to do it exegetically, not eisegetically. We are not going to manipulate the scripture. We're going to commit not to do that. So we can't ask the question, what interpretation lines up with the way my life looks or feels? We can't ask what interpretation would match my own subjective experience. Or, you know, sometimes the other verses, what, you know, you've got somebody who's not a believer and they're approaching some of these things. What, what interpretation would be more palatable evangelistically? Which is going to draw people better? How do I catch more flies with honey? We don't get to interpret scripture in light of our limitations and our lives. Um, we interpret our lives in the light of God's authoritative word as revealed in scripture. It reads us and interprets us. It is the authority. We are the subject. We can't relieve ourselves of this guilt or the feeling of guilt that this passage can bring to us because um, we want to relieve it. We can only relieve it because the word in and of itself, rightly understood, does not present us with an impossible command. So I want to look at one really important word in this passage. It's the Greek word poion. Uh, my dad, my Greek dad would probably hate how I pronounced that. Um, it's a simple word meaning to make, to do, to perform, to practice. You see it in God making things and Jesus making things. Um, what's important is the tense. So this verb is in the present active participle tense. Um, it is an indication, as you see there in your notes, of present, continuous, ongoing activity as opposed to occasional or sporadic actions. Um, we see it five times, this exact verb, translated or, or in this exact tense in five different verses. And by the way, I have the wrong uh, verses in your notes because I, uh, I, I'm on single dad mode. My wife is out of town right now, so I made some mistakes. Uh, the first three should be verses four, eight, and nine. And the last ones, where I wasn't even close, is seven and ten. Uh, it's been a busy week. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this verb in this tense, five out of seven times, verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. You see it both there. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's verse nine. The makes a practice of is the verb. And then the other word, the sin or the righteousness is, the, is its uh, partner. We see it on the righteousness side. Seven, or, so, yeah, seven. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Um, whoever does not practice righteousness, those are both uh, the practicing righteousness side of things. That's seven and 10. This verb is used throughout the New Testament uh, 27 times. John accounts for about half of them. So it's a verb that he likes. Uh, he uses it a lot. 
comfortable in his vocabulary. Uh, you see there John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Matthew seven twenty one. somebody else, but Jesus using it here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will, so that does is another, is that poion, of my father is in heaven, or who is in heaven. Not only that, there are other present active participles, not just this verb, but other verbs, okay? So when you see in 3.6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, okay? Or who keeps on, uh, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And he cannot keep on sinning, verse 9, because he has been born of God. Verse 10, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So these are other words that are presenting the same idea of a continual, ongoing, intentional action. Um, they describe decisive, continuing action. Um, John's not asking, talking about occasional acts of either sin or righteous acts here. He is getting into chosen courses of action. Do we understand the difference between those things? That's huge. Um, I mentioned why we're reading the ESV. Uh, another Bible, I go back and forth between reading the ESV and CSB translations. I read them both. I think they're both really good. Um, fun fact, one of my favorite things about the CSB, just so everybody knows, is it translates measurements. So if you're like, I don't know how heavy a shekel is or how much an ephah is, your CSB actually translates those things into like, you know, liters and pounds and feet and that kind of stuff, which is super helpful if you don't have, if you're not like up on your shekels to pounds ratios as, you know, we probably forgot that since Peter like helped him come up with it. But um, uh, so anyway, but the CSB has these things translated, no one who sins, no one, you know, practices righteous or, or is righteous very much. So, and I think we can all acknowledge there's a difference in the sound between saying, no one who sins knows God versus no one who keeps on sinning knows God. Do y'all hear the difference there? Because you may be sinning. I mean, in, a, in one sense, we do keep on sinning. We're always battling sin. We're always having that new thing. And, and in that sense, it can feel like, man, I keep on sinning. But there's a difference. The, the verb here, you got to understand there's a a performance, a practicing, a almost getting better at in, uh, indication. Who, have, who keeps on doing and creating and making either sin or righteousness. Do y'all hear that distinction in, in turn? So, up, I, I keep running into this thing versus I'm intentionally running into this thing. Because um, I think uh, there's something, how many of you guys know, have heard of what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect? Does anybody know what that is? The Dunning-Kruger effect? It's a really fascinating concept. It's that the more you know about something, the less you think you know about it. And the less you know about something, the more you think you know about it. So the dumber you are in an area, the more, the less you know that you don't know. Uh, the more you know, the more you're in touch with what you don't know. If you think about a circle, my circle of knowledge here has a little bitty circumference. The things I've bumped into that I don't know are small. Um, then there's other stuff beyond that. As my circle grows, it's got a bigger circumference, meaning that I'm going to bump into more things that I don't know. Um, I feel this is the case with sin. I look at the sins I was fighting 15 years ago, and I'm like, I thought that that's all I thought I knew. I'm fighting things I didn't know existed in my heart 15 years ago. Uh, that is the grace of God. I am progressing in mortifying sin. I am progressing in practicing righteousness. Um, that is different from 
You know, so, so me, keep, me running into the next sin and the next sin and the next sin and the next sin and fighting it is different from me dwelling and hanging out with this one sin and being best friends with it. Get the difference? Okay. Um, so in light of that, we can deduce at least temporarily that this passage is talking about chosen courses of sin and righteousness versus practices of, or uh, accidental moments, or uh, I say accidental, that's not the right word. Um, moments of sin uh, that are then dealt with. But I want to make sure that we let the whole counsel of God speak on this topic. So we're going to get topically for a second about this. And you, you, that's a good way to do things. When you're doing things expositionally, hit your, you know, read what you're reading or teach what you're teaching, and then make sure that you're not saying something that's completely heretical in light of the rest of scripture. So just a quick uh, run through here. John 18, Peter, a believer, denies Jesus three times. Okay, does he sin? Okay, um, Philippians 1, uh, Paul describes rivals preaching out of selfish ambition. He does not say these guys aren't believers. He attests the truth of their gospel, but these guys are doing something he's going to call sinful in a few verses. Romans 7, Paul gets nitty and gritty with his own struggle with sin. Okay, Hebrews 11, that is a list of faith. It is also a list of sinners. All of them, some more glaringly than others. Uh, highlights, David, Samson, Noah. These guys were big time sinners. Uh, they are all listed in the hall of faith. Um, and earlier in this, in this book, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But these are believers, right? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Christ Jesus, the righteous, or Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's talking to believers. He says, I'm writing this so you don't sin. But if you do sin, you still have an advocate. You have not forfeited the faith. You are not outside of the faith just because you've sinned. So using the fullness of the scripture of God, including within this book elsewhere, I think we've got a really good picture that the believer is capable of sinning, that this doesn't um, destroy his or her relationship with God, that he still has an advocate, um, and that what John is referring to here is more intentional courses of sin that indicate a lack of salvation to begin with. Agreed? Okay, good. However, John is not saying that we can just sin with impunity because we're believers. In fact, he's saying that if there is this same sort of habitual, unrepentant, and lack of sin and lack of righteousness, that is an indication that one is not a true believer at all. I think it stands up to the full counsel of God as we look at this that we as believers are not completely released from living in a fallen body, in a fallen world, with a vicious foe. That we will stumble and that we have an advocate when we do. Now, specifically, John gives two reasons in this passage why we won't continue to live in habitual, ongoing sin. Why did Jesus come to earth? That's one reason, right? I could say lots of reasons why Jesus came. Jesus said lots of reasons why Jesus came. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1. 
I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? To proclaim the gospel, right? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to serve and to give his life, right? That's uh, Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Ultimately, I'm surprised Peter didn't go with this. He, went, he stayed in the text. I like that. I thought you were going to go with to reveal God's glory. Um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there are dozens of reasons Christ came. In this passage, there are two, and we're going to talk about them. The first reason, to take away sins. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Y'all, to abide in Christ is to be absorbed, to be subsumed into his purposes. His purposes become our purposes. Or I guess our purposes become his purposes. Probably a better way of saying that. We, we are conscripted into his, services, uh, into his uh, purposes. If Christ came to take away sins and we are habitually continuing to walk in sin, then that means that Christ has failed at his purpose of coming to take away our sins. It means that we don't abide in him. Christ gets what he wants. He does what he purposes. God says, I will do all that I please. And that includes delivering you from the bondage of sin. If we don't see that happening, either we are not abiding in Christ or he is failing miserably. I'm going to let you guys pick which one you think is more likely. Either you aren't in Jesus or God is a failure. Y'all just be careful how y'all decide on that one. On the other hand, the habitual practice of righteousness is a sign that we are abiding in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and being progressively conformed into his image. I think it's really interesting, by the way. I don't know if you're like me. I know I was this way. When I think about this verse, the the part that I focus on is the sinning part. Am I the only one? I like look at the whole, the keeping on sinning part. And I, I, it's easy to gloss over the practicing righteousness part. And I think in some ways it's because not sinning seems like a measurable goal. Like, not that I could necessarily do it, but like zero sins. That's the number of sins that we're shooting for here is zero. Um, maximal righteousness is what? I don't know. It's a little more righteous every day. It's consistently, constantly loving neighbor. Um, it is putting the death sin in, in the flesh. Um, it's harder to quantify. And I think we just kind of like glaze over. It's like, man, I don't even have time to think about that righteousness side of things. I got to figure out all the sin part. Uh, both these things are happening simultaneously. Okay. So just because you may be battling a certain sin does not mean you cannot be showing righteousness in other areas that God is not conforming you and shaping you in other areas. Okay. He will do what he wants to do as he wants to do it. So don't get hung up on the keep on sinning part. Let's also focus on the righteousness side of things here too. Christ has a purpose, which is the killing of your sin and the maximization of God's glory displayed through your righteousness as it reflects Christ's righteousness that is uh, bestowed upon you. So don't forget as you're battling sin to look for evidences of grace in the form of Christ's righteousness. Are you kinder than you were a year ago? Um, 
Are you more generous than you were a year ago? Uh, you know, have you given sacrificially, have you loved sacrificially a friend this year that's been really hard? Like, don't overlook those areas of God's grace. Uh, not in a matter of self-aggrandizement, but realizing that you are being conformed into his purposes. You are coming alongside Christ's purpose. Remember, God made man in his image. Sin marred the image of God in man, not in God. Um, Christ came to restore the image of man in God. And as we grow in righteousness, that image is slowly and steadily restored until one day we are perfectly restored into his image. The Imago Dei is completely restored. Uh, That is such good news. The other reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. That's verse 8. So if you abide in Christ, you are following his purposes. To abide outside of Christ is to work contrary to his purposes. The devil has been doing what? He's been sinning from the beginning. His agenda, murdering, deceiving, binding, destroying, blinding minds, scheming, accusing, ensnaring, devouring. He's got a busy to-do list. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Satan came to bind your eyes to the way. He came to deceive you about the truth. He came to take life. We need to ask ourselves, whose side are you on? (laughs) Whose purposes are you advancing? Um, Because Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. You don't get to be Switzerland in World War II here. You cannot be neutral. You're on a side. Um, As you look at your purposes, whose purposes are you steadily, habitually, regularly, intentionally advancing? I'm going to do something that I think has never been done in any teaching environment in this church, I think. Um, I am going to quote the 90s classic, Kindergarten Cop, um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as a policeman who, for some reason or another, is a kindergarten teacher, probably because some movie exec thought it would be hilarious. And it is. Um, And he's talking to this kindergarten class, and he asks them, I'm not even going to do the Arnold accent because I'm not really good at it. Does anybody do a really good Arnold Schwarzenegger accent? No? Because I will totally put you on blast. Absolutely. He asks his class, who is your daddy and what does he do? And I'm going to ask you the same thing. Who is your daddy and what does he do? By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This isn't just a matter of allegiance. This is a matter of lineage. What is your lineage? Some of us look just like our parents. Some of us don't. Anytime somebody meets me who knows my dad, they say, oh, you look just like your dad. 
And I think it's just because they don't know very many Greek people. And they're like, oh, you're short, dark, and fuzzy. You look like this other guy that I know. Um, it's like when you see two pandas, you think two pandas look exactly alike. They can tell each other apart. Uh, same idea, only we're not quite as fuzzy as pandas. Um, some of us look just like our parents. Um, some of us don't. Some of us act like our parents. Some of us don't. You have more control over whether or not you act like your parents than whether or not you look like your parents. Um, like, if you saw Mahaney and Kresha, you're not like, I wonder if they're mother and daughter. Like, no, it's like, oh, somebody got a cloning machine. Cool. Um, John and Isaiah, not so much, okay? Um, some people just look at their parents, but some people also act like their parents, and some people intentionally don't act like their parents. Um, spiritually, we have less control over this. I'd say we have minimal control over this. What John's saying here is that our activities will reflect who our spiritual parents are, who our parent is, our father is, um, in the same way that our physical appearance will reflect who our earthly parents are. And it's going to grow stronger over time through the practicing of the character of our spiritual father. So ask yourself, to whom do you bear a family resemblance? And in whose image are you growing? Whose character are you practicing? Who, whose image are you growing up into? Are you being moved from glory to glory? Um, I would attest, I don't know all of you, um, but I know a lot of you. And I can think of so many of you in ways that I've seen ways of you growing from glory to glory. Um, I see righteousness in your lives. I see uh, mortification of sin in some of your lives. And that sounds weird. It's like, well, you're watching my sin. No, I've just seen you shape and grow. Um, I've known some of you in here a long time. Um, I... I want to encourage you guys to read this passage, to not feel burdened by an unreal expectation of perfection, uh, to be encouraged towards righteousness in God's image. Um, But with that encouragement, and just like we talked about John's writing for assurance, I want you to also feel compelled to greater righteousness, to less sin, Don't give up the battle. Don't think, I've gotten this far. This will do. Continue. Be vigilant to fight sin in your life. That is one way in which righteousness grows. Um, Grow into your father's image. You will anyway. You have confidence. You have assurance that you will grow in righteousness. That's what this passage says, that he who... uh, who abides in Christ as his father, um, or I guess in God as his father, who abides in Christ, um, grows in righteousness. You are made righteous as he is righteous. Um, So you have confidence that as you work towards those ends, as you take on that responsibility, just like he is sovereign over that happening, that you have a God who is in control of that process and will do what he wants to do, that he will not let you be stuck in a spot where you can't overcome something, he will complete that good purpose in you. And that's really good news. Uh, Let's pray, and then let's get down to church. Thank you, Lord, for these folks. Um, Thank you for their consistent attendance. Thank you for uh, the ways that you are shaping and growing your children into your image. God, I pray that we would 
lean hard into your purposes, that we would work to destroy the works of the devil, uh, that we would knock down his gates, Lord, that we would conquer sin in our lives and display the beauty of your righteousness to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members, to our church, uh, Lord, and before you. Lord, thank you that you have committed to do this in us, Lord. Lord, give us confidence and faith in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.